Welcome to The Vow, Voice of Women. Our mission has always been about empowering women through the sharing of real-life stories. When women create a community through the journey of sharing, we gain empathy, forgiveness, and perspective. We encourage you to open your heart to receive today's story. I'm sitting here today with our guest, Nina Pierwall. Nina Pierwall faced an unexpected childhood tragedy, which inspired her mindfulness and meditation journey over 20 years ago. After climbing the corporate ladder in sales and marketing for nearly a decade, she took a sabbatical, moved to California to unplug, and lived in an ashram for a year to further her learning of ancient wisdom and letting go. It's been her greatest passion to help others find happiness through adversity. With that, she founded Pure Minds a social enterprise that conducts mindfulness and meditation workshops for the corporate sector with over 50 clients. She is the co-author of the international bestseller, Let That Shit Go, and has also partnered with A Kid's Company About as a podcast hosting kids meditation mentor. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Nina as she opens up about the tragedy that changed the trajectory of her life, turning her pain into purpose. Nina, welcome. Thank you so much for that very humbling introduction, and I'm really happy to be here. Nina, can you speak to our listeners about your unexpected childhood tragedy? Let's start there, because I think that's probably the foundation of, of you know, a lot of these things that have happened in your life and kind of the, the you know, where you are today. It absolutely is. And the unexpected childhood tragedy that I faced was I lost my dad and brother very tragically at 16. Very long story short, my mom decided to leave my dad. Uh, They were in, you know, it was an abusive marriage for 22 years. She had hit a point where she realized it wasn't healthy. She couldn't do it anymore. She served him with divorce papers. Uh, For the first time in their marriage, she had control instead of him and he could not handle it. And six months after that, uh, he murdered my brother and he took his own life. So I lost my dad and brother to a murder-suicide. And life has never been the same again. But I have to say that, you know, that incident is is really what made me who I am today. I can say that now 25 years later. Um, But, you know, it was was heartbreaking and uh, a shock. But as you said, I'm turning my pain into purpose now. So I feel you know, um, I can look back now and almost say in a weird way that I'm grateful for it because it, as I said, shaped me into who I am today. And how old was your brother Nina when he passed? So he passed away six days before his 11th birthday. Mm -hmm. So he was 10 years Mm -hmm. old. And what was it like growing up in your family? And did you, did you recognize that your parents had an abusive marriage? It's funny. I didn't, I was just talking to someone about this, how I, as a child, I didn't because I didn't know any better. So I remember the first time I went to a friend's house and, you know, her dad came home from work and he kissed her mom and they were laughing and they were holding hands. And I thought, I I remember just being so caught off guard thinking, is this what a marriage or parents or partners are supposed to look like? Um, wow, like you, so yeah, it wasn't you until, no, 
no other reference point. <laughs> um, and, you know, in Indian culture, and I know a lot of other cultures, divorce is very taboo. So my mom, you know, tolerated and tolerated and tolerated. And it wasn't until, you know, probably my early teens that suddenly I thought, this isn't right. Nobody deserves to be treated like this. Um, so at that point, I realized it wasn't a healthy relationship. But it took me a long time because you don't know what you don't know, especially as a child. You kind of just get molded into your environment um, and you don't know any different. Mm-hmm. What, what do you recall the day of the tragedy of losing your your brother and your father? What's your recollection? Oh, I remember that day like it was yesterday. I can tell you what I was wearing. I can tell you what I ate for dinner. Um, So my brother and I went to school that day. We came home. And at that point, my mom finally convinced my dad to move out. Um, She had to tread very lightly, obviously, because she was scared of him, rightfully so in hindsight. Um, And he had taken the day off. And even though he was moved out, he would come over at like six in the morning and he would stay until like nine o'clock at night. So it really wasn't like he was out of the house. But that particular day, he was very somber. He was very quiet. And the irony of that day was my mom was supposed to come home at 10 o'clock that night. My mom was a corporate executive and she had a meeting, which was really rare. She usually came home around five, but she had a meeting to prep for something. And she said, I'm not going to be home till 10 o'clock. So my dad took the day off. Um, and he was just hovering over my brother and I kind of like, I remember doing homework in, in my parents' room with my brother and we were watching TV, doing homework. And he was just standing in the doorway, just kind of with a blank look on his face, um, you know, watching us. And again, I knew he was going through his denial of the divorce happening. So I didn't really read into it. Um, but suddenly my mom came home at four 4.30 and I had had an optometrist appointment and she said, okay, your appointment's still available. Let's go. Um, and my brother said, can I come with you? And my dad had jumped in and said, no, I'm going to take you to the mall. You can get whatever you want. Um, and so off my mom and I went and you know, we come back and I, I remember I was 16. So I just got my license and I'm trying to open the garage door and I couldn't. And our re- neighbors were running up to the house, you know, basically saying, your ha- your house is on fire. Um, and, you know, from there, it was like police and firefighters and ambulance and, you know, all culminating to everybody at the hospital and finding out that, you know, they both didn't make mm. it. So it was a house fire. It was a house fire. I'm going to trigger warning here um, that, and, and, you know, you can feel free to edit this out, but um, my dad basically um, slit my brother's throat and set the house and himself mm-hmm. on fire. Um, yeah. So it was very violent. It was a very violent, um, you know, incident mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I just went to trauma therapy last year wow. to... I've dealt with a lot of grief and I'm at peace with the grief, but there's still like the trauma of the, you know, the crime or saw the crime scene. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it, it's been a lot, it's been a very long healing mm-hmm. journey and one that I think is just ongoing. Yeah. Wow. I, I can't imagine what that, uh, what that, what that was like. And like, when you reflect on that, do you like, did you ever think that your dad could do something like that? 
No, not in a million years. Even when we came home and we knew the house was on fire, we kept saying, you know, did they leave something in the oven? Were they trying to iron? What was going on? What happened? Even at that point when we knew he was kind of neurotic about my mom leaving. Um, I mean, he would make threats to her like, I'm, you know, in, in the six months between her serving him divorce papers and the incident, one day he would be doing the dishes, a task he never did, and begging for forgiveness. And the next day he would be like screaming on the top of his lungs like, you bitch, you're not going to get away with this. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you back. You know, just so, but you never in a you never ever think that someone's gonna do something like that. I mean, I think there was ultimate fear there, but you never really think it's gonna happen yeah. till it happens. Yeah, no, I wow. And like how was your mother, you know, post that? Like how was she? I mean, you're 16, so obviously this is impacting you tremendously it's impacting your mother in a different way because it's her husband and her son versus, mm-hmm. you know, sister, you know, you being a sister. So your brother and, and father, how did she manage her grief? Spirituality. Mm-hmm. She really, I mean, we were into spirituality before, but after my dad died, she really got into it, even though she had, you know, a corporate job, she would leave for three months and do pilgrimages in India. And she was a very incredibly positive person. Mm -hmm. Um, She didn't dwell a lot on the incident and she lived her life to the fullest. I mean, she finally had freedom because my dad was very controlling. He wouldn't let her go to the mall. He wouldn't let her have friends. He wouldn't let her, you know, he bugged our phone to make sure she wasn't calling anyone. Like he was very controlling. So after he died, she was like, I'm going to Costa Rica and I'm going to rappel down waterfalls and I'm going to Jasper and I'm going to ATV in the mountains and I'm going to Thailand. She just lived her life. So I think that freedom, even though it came at the expense of the loss of her son, and that was, I, as a parent now, have no idea how she did that, but um, she really just lived her life to the fullest. And she didn't, she didn't dwell on what happened. She just um, accepted it very quickly and, you know, uh, was steadfast on the spiritual path. Wow. That, I mean, that's, it's remarkable because, you know, you had mentioned, you know, as a parent, so you're a mom, you have kids and I'm also a mom and I like, that's a parent's worst nightmare and not only losing a child, but losing, you know, your husband. And it sounded like maybe that was, you know, being in an abusive marriage, you know, uh, probably a lot harder to lose your son um, than, than losing your husband. But I just can't imagine losing a child. You know, that would be. Yeah. I mean, I think with my dad to be, sorry. Yes, it is. It is. It is the worst. Literally. I think it's the worst type of loss um, you could go through is to, to bury your own children. But I think candidly, she was relieved that my dad was gone because he was a monster really with her for their entire marriage. Um, So I think that was more of a relief. And Mm -hmm. she always said, you know, my brother saved her life. Like he sacrificed his life for hers. Yeah, I just, yeah, it would be, yeah, very, very difficult. And so Nina, what was the relationship with your mother like before and after this tragedy? 
It didn't really change, to be honest. My mom was always a very affectionate, very loving, caring, um, wholesome mother. And, you know, after the incident, obviously we got even closer if that was possible, but, you know, she was my bestie and she, she always was. And after the incident, you know, that, that brought us even closer. And I think it gave us the perspective too, of just resiliency and you life is short. You never know what's going to happen. So she was really my hero and my cheerleader, but she led by example. She really, really did live in the moment. Like she had work in perspective. She had life in perspective. So she, you know, if an opportunity came up, she never shied away from pursuing it. She took risks. She lived life. She had, she was very practical. Like she raised me then as a single mom, put me through university and gave us an amazing life. But um, also, you know, lived in the moment. So we always Which had is an wonderful, incredible especially going through um, such tragedy and and in really pivotal years. Like teens are hard enough as it is, you know. And you throw a murder suicide yeah. in there. I can't imagine, you know, what that was like. And did you go through therapy then, or did you mention that you just as of a year ago started dealing with your trauma? Yeah, I did not go through, um, I, you know, my mom put me through with a child psychologist and I hated it. I, I didn't feel connected to the person. I didn't feel like talking about it. I felt it was very formal, um, but I had a hard time. Nobody told me this was 1997. So no one really talked about mental health. No one talked about trauma. No one told me you just went through trauma. So I, I had a hard time sitting in class. So I would be in my guidance counselor's office a lot. And so that helped. And one day she held, handed me a pamphlet for an organization called the Season Center for Grieving Children, who I do volunteer work now. So it's come oh. full circle. But uh, they're an incredible organization and they have peer-to-peer -peer support. And so I started going to their support groups. And I finally, for the first time in my life since that incident, felt seen, felt heard, felt I wasn't the weird girl, girl in high school, even though everyone was amazing in high school. I had a great group of friends. Like I, you know, was one of those people that was just everyone, you know, liked everyone and got along with everyone in high school. But I felt it when I walked the halls, like there was caution tape all over her house. Then we were on the news every day for a week. We were in like the front page of the local paper for a week. Like, so as I walked the halls, I could feel like, oh, there's the girl. But when I went to the season center, everybody had a story. Every, you know, one girl's sister got raped and murdered in Thailand. Another girl saw her mom get hit by – she was holding her mom's hand and her mom got hit by a drunk driver and she saw her mom fly up in the air and fall to her death. So like all of these stories that, you know, people would normally react, you know, oh my gosh, um, everybody felt normal <laughs> in that room. And that really helped me. And then – I was really into spirituality. So that was kind of my saving grace. But I, I have to admit, in hindsight, I really suppressed. I think I spiritual bypassed and I toxic positivity my way through my 20s and 30s. Um, and then when I was early 30s, I lost my mom. Oh. Uh, and that is when everything came up again. Because now I'm like, I literally lost my entire nuclear family. And all the grief came back. So that's when I saw a grief therapist. And, you know, even with my mom, my mom was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's or ALS. So we had an end of life therapist. We had sessions with her together alone. And I saw her after my mom died as well. Um, so I did a lot of work 
at that time. And then I also went through a whole process of forgiving my dad, healing through that. Um, and then, yeah, just last year I, uh, did a 20 week trauma healing program because I realized I've done a lot of work on grief, but I haven't actually dealt with the trauma of the incident. Um, and you know, like I just, things like I can't, I can't use knives. Like I, you know, I can't get, I can't get the image of the crime scene out of my head. So, you know, how to process that and and move through it. So I didn't really get help. And a part of it was, um, you know, I just was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm into spirituality and it's fine. And a, and a part of it was just society. Like nobody now, like everybody has a therapist, but in the nineties, you know, and early two thousands, like it wasn't so common. Oh my gosh. It was so faux pas. I remember. Yeah. I remember being in grade eight and, uh, my marks started dropping and, um, I was being bullied at school and no one really knew about it. And so the teachers suggested a therapist. And so my mom, they brought the therapist into the school and we sat in this room. And I, I remember just like my arms were crossed and I don't, I still don't think they knew I was being bullied. I didn't say anything. And I felt like they thought I was crazy. Yeah. They, I was like, only crazy people go to see therapists and I'm not crazy. Right. And, you know, and that's kind of how, you know, in the, you know, say, post even 2010, probably it wasn't something that was embraced. And now it's, it's almost cool to have a therapist, <laughs> right? Like people brag about it. Oh, my therapist. But yeah, it was kind of like you were either in the psychiatric ward or you were normal, <laughs> which like what is normal anyway, but everything, like I think back now, I'm like, how did I go to university two years after that? You oh know? my gosh. And oh, you, you- in a fog, probably. In a complete fog. And I remember leaving lecture and having no clue what it was about. Um, I remember studying, studying, studying for exams, and I was the one that would get the D. And I was a straight-A student, you know, before all of this. So, And no one told me, like, holy shit, you've just been through trauma. So I chalked it up as, like, I must be dumb. Like, I just must not be cut out for school or, I, you know. Um, and it's funny because my um, – university asked me to come back for a fireside chat with one of the mental health professors. And I had a pre-call with her and I'll never forget this moment. I was telling her how, you know, I would leave lecture hall and it was all a fog and can't, couldn't remember anything. And, and she looked at me and this was like over zoom, but she looked at me and said, Nina, the fact that so close after the incident, you got up and you took a shower and you put your clothes on and you showed up at lecture is a complete miracle. You know, and I just started bawling because I'm like the way that she just validated, um, you know, no, nobody did at that time. So I'm so glad now. And that's why I'm an advocate for mental health big time because A, what my dad did. So I'm an advocate for men's mental health, people who identify as men. um, And I'm an advocate just for youth mental health as well, because I don't think I had, you know, the universe, not the universe, but the, you know, the society didn't have anybody's back at that time when it came to mental health. And let's talk about this survivor's guilt and PTSD, because, you know, when I when I first read, you know, uh, read up a little bit on survivor's guilt, it's like you you go on thinking, well, I wish it was me. It could have been me. Why wasn't it me? And so, you know, you've lost your little your baby brother. You know, you've lost your father. So talk to us about what a survivor feels and survivor's guilt and, and PTSD and how that, how you kind of have, you know, um, I guess, gotten past that. 
Yeah, the survivor's guilt was, I mean, there was so much, right? Just just suicide in itself, the grief is so different because you're wondering, you know, you're questioning things, you're feeling guilty, you're wondering, you know, what they were thinking or how long it, they were planning for it. And then on top of that was my brother. So the survivor's guilt came from that very moment of him saying, can I come with you? And, you know, my dad just taking over and me regretting and regretting. And like, I would play that moment in my head over and over again, thinking, why didn't I take him? Because I think, to be honest, we all would have been okay if my dad had taken his own life because he was toxic and heavy and scary. Um, So, you know, why, why wasn't it me? Why wasn't I there to protect him? Um, And, and all of the detectives on the case as well, basically said that my dad's plan was to take me too. That's why it happened that night that my mom was supposed to come home at 10. He wanted her to come home to nothing, no house, no husband, no kids. Like he wanted ultimate revenge basically. Um, And so, you know, why wasn't it me? Why couldn't it have been me? It should have been me. I should have been the one home. Um, and, And interestingly enough, there were four people that day, like his friend called him, Someone else came by to take him out for something like, but fate, you know, had its own plan that he was, he was at home. So I had to really sit in the fact that, you know, and I've seen mediums, I've seen energy healers, I, you know, I've done it all. And I just, I had to just sit in the acceptance that this was his time and there's nothing that I could have done to, to save him from that, um, and, you know, I still have my moments. I'll be honest with you. I still have my moments where I, you know, my, I, I, I lose my breath when I think of, you know, the, what he went through and the fact that as, yeah, as his big sister who always protected him, we were so close, wasn't there. Um, and he, how violently he went as well. It was a very scary last moments, right? He was chased around the house with a knife. Um, and so, Oh, there was guilt around surviving. There was guilt around how he died. There was guilt that it wasn't me. Um, there's just, there's, it's really, really heavy. Um, and, you, you know, the way I got through it was just, you know, accepting that there really wasn't anything I could have done. That was, that was his plan. That was his, everybody's got a start date and end date. And that was his. Yeah, that was his. If your dad was sitting in front of you today, what would you say to him? Oh my goodness. Wow. That's a big question. So the answer to that question has evolved because obviously in the first, I couldn't even deal with the grief of my brother for two years because I was so angry with my dad. So there was a lot of anger. So, you know, you asked me this 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, even maybe, you know, a few years ago, I would have said, get the fuck out of my house. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear, but <laughs> you know, okay. get out of my face. Like I never want to see you again. Why did you do what you did? How dare you? You know, I had dialogues ready. Oh my gosh. The amount of times I imagined, um, even to be honest, doing something to him myself, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, conversations I would have had, like, I wished he, part of me wishes the, the, the firefighters got in in time to get him out. So he could have, you know, not died from smoke inhalation and he could have been in jail. So I could have questioned him, you know? Um, but now that I have done my work on forgiveness and I understand the big picture, um, you know, I, 
I don't know, some days I actually feel like I would, I would thank him because I feel like that's what, that whole incident is what catapulted me onto this path. What made me question life at 16? You know, what is my purpose and why am I here? And what is life all about? You know, those were things I was contemplating you know, as a teenager and life is hard enough as a teenager, you know, going through high school, all awkward. And, um, but you know, it really, really made me reflect. So I think I would say, um, you know, I'm sorry that you were hurting so badly because I basically forgave him through empathy, um, and understanding that he must've been in a really dark place to have done what he did. Um, and he never got help. He never got help. Mm -hmm. Um, and just say, you know, you did your best. Um, and it's or I'm sorry it, it it had to end this way, but in a way, you know, it's it's given me the life I have now of perspective. Let's chat about ALS. And um I'm pretty familiar with the disease. Um, it takes your body, but it doesn't take your mind. I've heard it's one of the most horrible diseases um, to to go from because you're just you're so mentally there, but your body isn't. And so, what was that like seeing you know your mother you know go through uh, and die of ALS of Lou Gehrig's disease? It was absolute hell. It was absolute tragedy. It was heartbreak. It was helplessness. I felt like I couldn't breathe some days, and I. It felt like it was a nightmare that I was stuck in. Um, you know, she lived with us, my partner and I, and that was very intentional. So, you know, I was saw her every single day. Um, I saw her deteriorate. It was horrific. I mean, she was incredible, though. She would be sitting in her wheelchair, like trying to smile as best she could and, you know, be like, how was your day? And, you know, she would say, you know, don't ever, ever feel sorry for me. She's like, I've, I've lived the best life you could have imagined. I've had so many blessings in this life. Like don't, I've lived a full life. Don't ever feel sorry for me. Um, you know, so she made it easy in that sense that, you know, she was ready. She, she didn't fear death. Um, but it was horrible. It was horrible to see such a person of adventure and light and love. And she, you know, on the weekend, she taught spirituality and meditation and people flocked to her. Like I, some of my friends were closer to her than their own moms. Like people just adored my mom. So to see our house was packed all the time with visitors and um, to see her deteriorate though, uh, you know, first she couldn't walk and she was kind of confined to a bed. And then, you know, she was still talking and using her hands and then she couldn't use her hands. And then eventually you can't talk. Eventually by the end, the only thing she could move was her eyeballs. And we had to spell out every word through blinking and eyeballs. It was awful. Um, so it was, it was gut wrenching, but I, you know, you, what do you, yeah, you can't control it. And that's, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is like, you know, there's things you can control in life and there's things you can't. So I just tried to enjoy every moment with her. And usually when people get sick, you know, you have more, I love you conversations and this is what you mean to me. And we didn't because our relationship was always like that. Like I would go, like I would go like to get milk and she would be, give me the biggest hug and be like, I love you so much, you know, like on a regular day. So that was just our relationship. So, you know, I would just sit there and hold her hand and we would watch a lot of Netflix when she couldn't talk. We, you know, but it was, it was awful and it felt very surreal. And I was also pregnant when she died. 
Um, mm. And so the tragedy of like my partner and I telling her that we're pregnant and her knowing like she's not going to make it to see her grandchild. You know, there was so much. Um, but I was grateful because I was with her at the ashram for a year. So, and she came back and she got diagnosed right after that. So I'm so grateful. That's why I tell people live in, she had one more year to retire, but she put that year on hold and went to the ashram and then, right? So most people are like, oh, I'm just going to retire and then live life. No, 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 not her. She's like, oh, this opportunity came up. Okay, I'm going. And then I'm going to work one more year for my 25 years and retire. Uh, She was with a bank for 25 years. So I was so grateful that I also made the decision to leave my career and sell my house and take all those financial risks and career risks and family, you know, put family on hold to spend that year with her. Like how magical that her last year of a healthy self was, you know, studying ancient wisdom in the Redwoods with her daughter and son-in-law. What was your mom's first name? Rita. Oh, Rita sounds like a force. I think I would have really enjoyed Rita. And you know what? Like, I mean, I'm very close with my mom, my dad, and, but a lot of people aren't close with their parents. And the fact that you had as many years as you did with your mom, 30 years of this beautiful life with a really amazing woman must just warm your heart. I am grateful. I am so grateful that, okay, maybe the quantity of life got cut short, but the quality of our relationship and what she instilled in me, like what I do today is because of her and for her. Everything I do really is for, she is the one who got me on the spiritual path. She is like, she was like, you know, way back before like yoga, meditation, all she was like trying to bring a spirituality to the office, you know, and now it's like companies are doing mindfulness and meditation, but (laughs) you know, ahead of her time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I miss her tremendously, but I, I feel her all the time, but it's, um, it hasn't been, I'm sure you do. She's with you every day, just in a different, in a different sense. And she's with you in the spiritual sense. Very much. So I get crazy signs from her. So um, I love that. Of those. <laughs> so you had a very successful career in sales and marketing and then decided to move to California to live in an ashram. So I'm dying to know what it's like to live in an ashram. And I'm so, I'm sure many of our listeners are as well. It, this is so foreign to me. I mean, I picture like very eat, pray, love in India, but you went to California in an ashram. So let us know what that was like and how that changed your life. Oh my gosh. It was incredible, but it was challenging. I was very addicted to work. I was addicted to my Blackberry or Crackberry as they called it. And so I decided to unplug. I decided to intentionally not have access to internet, not have access to you know, phones or the outside world. I told my friends, if you want to get a hold of me, write me a letter. Um, and I actually sent and received 150 letters that year, which is incredible, <laughs> handwritten letters. Um, but it was challenging. We had, you know, we were up at like five every day. We had our first class. Class was meditation at six o'clock. We had classes all throughout the day. We had seven o'clock class. We had chanting. We had, um, you know, monks from all around the world come and, and teach us. And we had, you know, presentations. And like, it was legit. It was, it was intense. Um, but incredible, incredible. And what happened that year too, is because I had no distractions, which is, I think what happened to a lot of people in the pandemic when you're in isolation is shit comes up. So outside of all the learning of ancient wisdom, there was also me 
dealing with stuff I was suppressing. I think I kept myself so busy with my social life and my career that I didn't deal with anything. And so that also was an opportunity to look things in the face. And it was me in the Redwoods, you know, so walking around and doing a lot of reflecting. Um, But it was challenging being, you know, like you had to, you couldn't leave the premises. You had to like eat a certain way. We were on a really strict schedule. It was seven days a week. Um, You know, a lot of rigor, but just so rich in, in knowledge and wisdom and everything we learned. I'm so, so incredibly grateful for. And I came back and thought all of this stuff, even though it's ancient, it's literally 10,000 years old. It's so relevant to today's world and stress and anxiety and everything we're facing, you know, in and out of the workplace. But I wanted to come back and just share it with the world because it was, you know, it blew me away and it changed my life completely. What was the hardest thing for you now that you're out of it reflecting back that, you know, you couldn't leave the premises. I'm dying to know what the food was like, but because I'm a foodie, if someone said you're going to an ashram for a year, I'd be like, okay, great. As long as it's good food. I know. No, they, well, they had a cook there and it was funny because, well, it was Indian food every single day for every single meal. And it was vegetarian, uh, which is fine. Um, But it was funny because in the beginning, the cook was putting like cream in the like the sog which is you know the Indian word for spinach so he's making this amazing sog but it had all this like 10% cream in it so the monks had to be like stop putting cream in the sog everybody's like falling asleep in class um and that was the tastiest thing we had so yeah it was a very like bland and I don't know very simple simple food I think you know the hardest thing was not doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do. Like I remember coming home, like there was no TV or so I remember coming home and being like, oh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get takeout and I'm gonna just turn on the TV and I'm gonna call a friend. Like it was, you know, there was a lot of um uh discipline, you know, so that was very, very challenging. And you know, there were some classes that we didn't like so much that were, you know, about chanting or like we had to learn Sanskrit. You know, there was a lot. Um, so some of the some of the classes too, it's like we didn't have a choice. We had to go to them. So I always say it was the most liberating thing I've ever done, but also the most um challenging. So were you about 28 or 29 at this time? Yeah, I turned 30 actually when I was at the ashram. So you just turned 30. Wow. That's like a, and so the average age of, of, of the, the students there, did you fall within that age no. or were they older? No, they were all retired. It was like my husband ah. and I were the only two youngins. Um, and everybody's like, what are you two doing here? Like you should be back home having kids. Like, um, and everybody else was retired um, because it's like, you don't have opportunities to do things like this right if you have kids and we kind of knew that we're like okay we can either start a family or we can do this for a year um and so it was everybody whose kids were already older and like out of the house and took care of themselves um so no we were the only two young ones there for the entire year wow and your husband went with you that's amazing he did stand up husband he totally spirituality too he like was so close with my mom he got very close to her as well and she inspired that in him too and he got very curious about it um but yeah everybody thought we were crazy because it was an economic crisis and so we sold our home I remember our financial advisor going like what are you two doing like you're leaving your secure jobs you're selling your home the world is falling apart 
Um, so Mike, my, my husband struggled with that a lot because he's very, very pragmatic. He's very practical and analytical. Um, but he did it. And, you know, now everyone at work who thought I was crazy is now calling me being like, can you come into our office and teach us what we learned? <laughs> you're the, you're the, like the token coach yeah. now that you've been to an ashram. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, a lot of my clients, like 70% of my clients are ex-colleagues, you know, that work for these companies. So, um, wow. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, that's. I can't imagine. I mean, I always uh, fantasize about selling all my earthly belongings and going, taking my family and going on like a sail trip for the year. I don't ever fantasize about selling all my belongings and going to an ashram <laughs> for a year. But do the sail trip. Do the sail trip. Do the sails trip. Yes. <laughs> so, Nina, you've suffered like an immense amount of loss in your life, probably more loss than than anybody, any story that I've ever heard. How have you found the strength in you? Cause you are, you sound so strong now to turn your pain into purpose. That's a great question. And I, I think a, a lot of it was the, the spiritual path. I think really my meditation practice has saved me. I try to meditate every single day and it is the most grounding and powerful thing. Um, because you realize, you know, the impermanence of, of, of life and how quickly it can go. So you become really grateful. Like I, you know, and, and, you know, also knowing my dad wanted to take my life. So the fact that I'm miracle, miraculously, my mom's meeting got canceled and I'm here today, like just sitting in the gratitude of being alive. And I remember having a very defining moment when I was at the season center, because I'd say, you know, half the members were going down a really dark hole of addiction and, you know, like quitting school. And I totally understand that because I, I was on the brink of that path too. Um, but I remember sitting there thinking, no one is going to go to university for me and lift me up and figure all this out for me. Like the only person that is in control of my life is me. So it's my choice to go down a rabbit hole um, and throw it all away or uplift myself and do something with this pain. Um, and I, I can't, it wasn't like a light switch and suddenly I was like, oh, and everything was all good. But I kind of made a commitment to myself that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to continue living and I'm going to enjoy life and I'm going to, you know, never take anything for granted. And so I think it was kind of sitting in all of that, um, that, you know, has has made me you know where I am today mind you when my mom was diagnosed that I felt like I started back at ground zero I was like I can't oh my gosh yeah Yeah. that would especially because of the relationship you had with your mom and she was really the only surviving person that really understood your loss and your you know this tragedy and that was there was probably some comfort in that you weren't in this alone and then getting this diagnosis and losing your mom, I can only imagine the loneliness that you must have felt. So isolating and so lonely and so helpless, like especially seeing her suffer when you have to see a parent or someone you love suffer and you can't do anything about it. There's no drug you can give them. There's no money that could fix things. Like it just, you couldn't do anything. Um, it was just, I felt like, yeah. And the irony of coming out of the ashram and being like, I got anything through, you know, universe, you can throw anything at me. I got this. I got all this knowledge. I have, you know, a case full of textbooks that I've written that I, or that I've taken notes on, um, or notebooks, you know, and I, I came back on such a high 
that I can conquer anything. And then it's almost like the universe was like, oh yeah, well, here you go. How about this? Um, and it was just gut wrenching. And that's why I really, like, I really started my grief healing journey then when I, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I don't, she was my last standing family member. And it was, it's, it's hard, right? Because it's like your siblings and your parents are the ones that, you know, when you get together at Christmas and you, oh my gosh, remember when we used to do this or when you were sick, yes. blah, blah, blah. Like I, when I had my daughter, because my mom went, as she was dying, she's like, do you have any questions for me? Like, and I was, I would always be like, no, like, I just want to sit here and hold your hand. But then after I had my daughter, I was like, oh my God, did she breastfeed me? And like, for how long? And yeah, all this yeah. history just like gone. And I can't gone. ask anyone, like, I just, you know, um, so it, it was, it was, it was very tough. It was very tough. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Let This Shit Go, because <laughs> what an amazing title and a brave title of a book for, you know, the circumstances in your life and what has happened. And if anyone can write a book with a title like that, it's you, Nina. So first of all, like what led you to writing this book? How did you come up with such an amazing name? And what was it like? Was it cathartic writing this book? Yeah, such a great question. So I had zero intentions of writing a book. (laughs) I'm telling you, when you follow your path, I remember one of the monks um, in California said, as long as you're walking a path that's not meant for you, you're going to feel like you're walking with a rock in your shoe. And so I was very intentional about what I did. And, you know, after my mom died, because I came back, I went into corporate and I still didn't feel right. I mean, I liked what I did and it was fine. But um, when my mom died is really when I was like, okay, you want to spread spiritual knowledge? You want to spread ancient wisdom? Do it. Like my, you know, my brother died at 11. My dad was 44. My mom was 61. So you can go at any time, like just do it. And and I gave myself a year. Um, So anyway, as I went on that path, I just started doing workshops, you know, in the city with my co-author, Kate. And she had this great idea to just put swearing, you know, call the mindful AF and, you know, learn how to fucking meditate. And I, at first I was like, I don't know how I feel about that, but you know, it worked because everyone, you know, nobody, it was intimidating how, how to meditate. Right. So it just made it very approachable. And next thing you know, Harper Collins caught wind of these workshops because they went viral <laughs> And, you know, HarperCollins is like one of the top, it's the top three biggest publisher. publisher. Um, they called us and said, hey, we want you to write the mindfulness version of, you know, the subtle art of not giving a fuck by Mark Manson. Like we want you to write like an unfiltered approach to mindfulness because we think it's super relevant. Um, and so, you know, we did. And it's crazy that you ask about the title because they actually wanted to call the book fuck meditation. Um, (laughs) And this was the book they had. They actually had a book and then they had to seek out authors. So they had all decided, you know, this was going to be the book and we're going to find the authors and they found us. And so we said, yeah, we can definitely write a book, an unfiltered book on mindfulness. You know, so we wrote a 25 page proposal and we didn't say anything about the title. We're like, let's just see how they are with our content. They loved it. We go to sign and we're like, there's just one thing we got to talk about. We cannot call this book fuck meditation. And they were like, what do you mean? And, you know, Kate was actually really good about, you know, she's like, that's like saying, you know, fuck Catholicism or fuck the cross. Like it's really disrespectful in certain religions. And like, who's going to pick up a book? It's not appealing to people who want to meditate or don't want to meditate. 
Um, so we just can't stand behind it. And they basically said, well, this is the title we agreed on. So I guess you're not our authors. And we said, okay, I guess we're not our, your authors. And we walked away. Um, and in the proposal, we had to write the 120 tips. We had to write the headings of them. And one of them was let that shit go. And then a week later, they came back to us. They said, actually, we loved your proposal. You are our authors. Like, are you okay if we call it let that shit go? And we were like, done, 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 done. Oh, that's actually a really amazing story because they obviously valued, you know, your proposal and your writing and your story enough for, for them to change, you know, willing to change the title. And, and I do agree. Like, I mean, I grew up in a very strict Christian conservative home. Um, it, you know, practicing my religion and my faith is still very important to me. And I think that word, especially up against meditation would have probably affected a lot of people in wanting to read it. Exactly. Um, like who's going to pick up? I totally agree. So what, what great feedback. And I'm so happy Harper Collins took that into consideration because let that shit go. It's, it's still, it still has some punch to it. But, you know, you don't, I don't think you have to really worry about offending anybody. Exactly. It, it felt fun. It felt relatable. It felt like what a lot of people wanted to do. Um, so we were, we were so happy. And, and, you know, one of the things we talked about in our, in our book, one of the chapters is authenticity. So we're like, if we're preaching this, but we're not being authentic to this process, then, you know, we're not living up to what we're preaching. So that was one thing we wanted to, you know, really advocate for and um, to the point where we were willing to walk away. Um, but yeah, I had no intentions of writing a book. And I, you know, I speak to high school students as well. And I always tell them, you know, I'm a best-selling author who failed high school English. So never give up. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, you know, obviously it was after the incident and I just, I couldn't focus in school and, and all that. But, you know, you just, I never in a million years had intentions to write a book. So it's just funny that when you make room for stuff and when you heal, the universe will make room for the good. Uh, amen. Amen to that. And, and was that, what, what was that process like? So was it cathartic? Did it help your healing? Had you already gone through a lot of healing? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah. Like the timing was impeccable because I had just gone through the process of forgiving my dad, going through all of that grief therapy, uh, losing my mom. So I had done so much reflecting. I had it having my daughter. Um, so it was absolutely a cathartic process. Um, the crazy thing is they gave us nine weeks to write the book. What? <laughs> nine weeks? Nine weeks. We had to submit a chapter each week because they asked us in March and they wanted it launched for January. So they're like, we need you to write it in nine weeks. And then we have four months of editing. Um Oh my gosh, my mouth is still like draped open. It was I can't imagine. Crazy. It was crazy. And at first we we're like, how the heck are we going to do this? But at the same time, it was almost a blessing because we didn't overthink anything. I think a lot of yeah, people who go true. up to write books or self-publish, they're working on it for years because they're like, well, I don't know about this. But we didn't have that choice. And it's literally, you know, my soul and Kate's on paper because all the lessons culminating of the last – you know, how old was I when I wrote the book? 30 something, 35 years were, are in the book, you know? And they asked us, mm -hmm. people, and we're like, we, we gave you everything. We can't, you know, like can't write a sequel in nine weeks. Like we, that was everything. And so um, it was very cathartic writing and it was crazy. I actually 
I'll tell you this story about, you know, when I was talking about sign. So I had a candle for my mom's funeral, a big fat orange candle. And, you know, I, I, every time I would write, I lit that candle and I would kind of say a little prayer to her in the universe. And I would just say, just use me as a vessel and write through me because I would literally be writing paragraphs and I'm like, who wrote this? Like, I don't feel, you know, and, um, I would never write without lighting that candle. And I, and the very last paragraph I wrote, so, you know, the last paragraph's meditation, I was literally writing the last paragraph and the candle goes out. Oh my gosh. So wow, I, I just, it, incredible, right? So I just, I feel like it was, um, you know, a labor of love, but also one where Kate and I really tried to be plugged in and, um, you know, share just like truths of what everybody is going through and, and kind of, you know, Oprah talks about this a lot, just like use myself as a vessel to spread knowledge kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you're doing that, Nina, like daily, not only with your book, but, you know, with your partnership with a, a kid's company about, and I, you know, you're definitely that vessel. You've taken your loss and you've become a vessel for, for helping other people, which leads me to my next question. You know, what advice could you give someone who's currently experiencing loss in their life? Because I feel like loss today is just so prevalent. Like I feel, I don't know if it's because I'm an adult and I'm aware of more people's loss. I don't know if more people are dying, but you know, maybe it's my age. I'm also in my early forties and um, yeah. So what advice can you give? The best advice I could give around going through loss is to honor it all every single step of the way to not judge your grief um to you know because it's like everything gets thrown at you oh the five stages of grief and, and i don't you know i think okay you experience those things but it's not chronological and everybody's grief is different and honor the emotions like don't be in a rush to get oh you never get over the loss of someone. You just learn to deal with a new normal life without them. So don't put your pressure on, you know, I have to get over this or I have to, you know, why am I still so upset? It's been 10 years or like, why can't I focus? E honor everything. If you've gone through trauma, acknowledge that affects the brain. You're not going to be as sharp. You're going to be foggy. If you want to cry every day for the next year, um, do that. Honor it all. Be very gentle and compassionate with yourself and know that everybody's journey is different and it's okay to sit in whatever space you're sitting um, and to also get the help you need. So get that grief therapist, get a, get a counselor, talk to people, do peer-to-peer -peer support. Again, whatever, you know, a lot of people, when my mom got diagnosed, were like, go to the ALS Society and do, you know, some groups. And I'm like, I don't want to because everybody else people are going to be there with their dads, you know, and that's going to trigger me or with their siblings. And, you know, so that didn't feel right to me. So again, lean in and go through healing that feels right for you without judgment and just honor every moment of the pain and the sorrow, but also like the realizations and the learnings um, to just, to just be present with it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think too, like to know that there is, life for you after you experience loss, because I think, you know, whether you've lost a child or a brother, you know, or a parent, like 
some people go to that dark place about, I don't want to live anymore. You know, my, my purpose is gone. Mm -hmm. And to know that there is life after loss is, is probably a really, you know, very hard, but really important to know. Absolutely. And if you are having those thoughts, especially those thoughts of not wanting to live anymore, you know, you really definitely seek out, you know, help. And there are so many amazing resources and groups and therapists and, you know, um, be aware if, if you're going to really dark places and mm-hmm. have the support system. And also like, you know, there's the professional support system, but the personal support system, have that person that can hold space for you, let you cry it out and, you know, know who unconditionally loves you and will hold you through this um, path. Mm-hmm. Nina, what have you vowed to yourself in life? Wow, that's a big one. I would now after trauma therapy, I would say I have vowed and I'm still working on it to fully live an authentic life. To just be me at mm-hmm. all costs. Like even wearing my hair curly, I couldn't do for 38 years, I would straighten it. You know, just just be me. Like you know, even going into the offices and talking about mindfulness, like all of this stuff, I think before mindfulness was, was a thing, you know, I'd, I'd be shy about it or I'd question myself or, you know, and now I'm learning how to be comfortable in my own skin, but in my own mind, in my own purpose, just owning it all is what I vowed to myself and living from that space. Mm, I love that. And Nina, we always like to spotlight a charity of choice. And what would your charity that uh, that you'd like to spotlight be? Oh, that's a great question. And I, I'm undoubtedly going to say that the Season Center for Grieving Children. Um, mm. So I'm an, an, I am an executive grief ambassador for them now, um, meaning that I um, drive awareness um, that they exist. And actually someone has just announced that they're going to be doubling all the donations going from now until the end of the year. Um, But it's an incredible organization for kids and, and, you know, youth mental health is, is such a priority. Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise in Canada. Youth suicide Mm -hmm. rates have doubled. And so I think it's so, and, and, and kids are, just like you said, we've, experience a lot of loss. Kids have lost parents to suicide. Kids have lost parents to addiction, to COVID. Um, and they need a place to go where they feel heard. I mean, in the classroom, they're, they're not relating to other kids in their class. Um, and they're going through this trauma, but they they can't talk about it with other kids because other kids who haven't lost that don't understand. So the Season Center is an incredible place where people truly feel like their grief is seen and heard. And I think at a time where mental health is so important, it's just a phenomenal charity. Mm, thank you. That's a, a great option. Yeah, mental health is definitely, um, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a trendy word right now, but it's a, it's a word that bears so much necessity and weight um, because of what the youth are currently going through, especially coming out of the pandemic and abuse in homes and loss of education and loss of routine. And yeah, it's, um, yeah. Thank you for, for spotlighting that Nina. Wow. Like I, I'm still processing your life and your loss and everything that you've gone through. And I'm so honored 
that you are so vulnerable to share your story. I always say through vulnerability becomes the most, you know, beautiful growth possible. And I'm honored that you are sharing your story and that you uh, shared your story with us today. So thank you. And how do our listeners find you if they want to know more about mindfulness in your book? Well, thank you for having me on. I have to say, I really love everything that your podcast stands for. And I think there is real power and vulnerability and telling stories. So thank you very much for having me on. And people can, and thank you for listening. If you've listened and made it this far, um, you can find me. My website is ninapurewell.com. The book, Let That Shit Go, is available pretty much everywhere online and in-store on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo. Um, And I pick my poison with social media. So I'm on LinkedIn at nina-purewell and I'm on Instagram at nina.pure.minds. Well, thank you so much, Nina. Honored to have you and um keep shining for for our youth and and uh, yeah i know you're just such a great asset uh to the people around you and i wish i could have met oh i wish you could have met her too thank you so much for saying that and thank you for having me on and just being a great ear and those fantastic questions thank you uh, <laughs> thanks nina bye-bye Thank you for listening to The Vow, Voice of Women. We hope that this episode has inspired you. If you want more information on The Vow, visit our website at voiceofwomen.ca. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us spread the stories.